This episode of the ER is brought to you by Russia Direct. Join the more than 1 million people around the globe who rely on Russia Direct for exclusive expertise and analysis of Russia's role in the world. Go to www.russia-direct.org today to learn more. It was just so strange to watch something as important as a presidential debate really devolve into a reality show. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by FP's managing editor for news, Laura Jakes. David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, is calling in from Vermont, of course. I, I mean, I, I'm just not even going to comment on that. Hey, it's, uh, it's peak leaf weekend, David. I don't understand why the entire ER isn't up here on the back porch. Yeah, well, we don't all have <laughs> massive estates and rolling hills in Vermont like you do. If only we were all paid like journalists. Yeah, Corey gets the funniest line of the season with, if only we were all paid like journalists. Um, and calling into the studio from Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Feel free to drop us a line at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have any ideas and comments or if you're just complaining about the mug you haven't gotten, which seems to be one of the things that's on everybody's mind. Maria Ori, our producer, is looking down at her desk shyly. Don't worry, everybody. You'll get your darn mugs. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, Corey, quite a weekend in American politics. A what? (laughs) I have a newfound appreciation for what it felt like to be Roman in the time of Caligula. (laughs) Please elucidate. (laughs) Oh, God, the the tawdriness of that tape about Trump and then the tawdriness of him getting Bill Clinton's accusers that— that I had to have a conversation with children in my life about what actually is the difference between bad behavior and sexual assault is something I really wish the politicians of our country had spared me. I have to say, by the way, that the tawdriness of those things was certainly, as you say it was, but it was certainly not particularly more tawdry than the display of a presidential candidate threatening to jail another presidential candidate or showing complete disregard for how our constitutional system works, uh, showing a real lack of understanding of the role of senators in the U.S. government, a love for the leadership in in Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So in fact, if you were going to ask me, and I'm going to ask you, Laura, if you were going to ask me to rank Uh, Donald Trump's lousy attributes, I'd put all the sleaze down at the bottom. I think there are a lot of other more important reasons why he shouldn't be president. Can I just say I was just warming up? (laughs) Well, that's that's why it's a longer show. But Laura? So my take on this is that it was just so strange to watch something as important as a presidential debate really devolve into a reality show. This was like the 
reality show of presidential debates. I was thinking last night when I was watching the debate, what other strange moments have come up in presidential debates that I've watched in my lifetime? I remember, I think it was in 1984 when Jesse Jackson had to play the peacemaker between uh, Walter Mondale and Gary Hart. There was some complaining and some finger pointing there. And certainly there were some tawdry elements of that campaign, but it wasn't nearly as nasty or as name calling. It felt like last night when we were watching the debate that every time an issue would come up, Donald Trump would devolve into name calling, um, liar, you should be ashamed of yourself, you have poor judgment. It also felt like, or it seemed like, that he was so little read in on the important issues of the day. If you notice, when he was asked about the sex tape, he immediately went into ISIS. ISIS is bad. I'm going to go get ISIS. These terrible things are not happening to ISIS. And it seemed to it just it's just seemed from, you know, somebody who does know something about ISIS that he had been given some talking points of things he needed to bring up. And he only hit the the high note of the talking points. If you don't know a whole lot about ISIS, where ISIS is, where ISIS comes from, how people have proposed getting rid of ISIS or attacking ISIS, you might ha- not have any clue what Trump is trying to say here. Yeah, well, I-, so I have a different take than Lara does, which is this is the first time I've seen Donald Trump have the discipline to have a strategy. Right. Like when faced with that tape pivoting to ISIS, he wasn't disciplined in the doing of it. Like, uh, I agree with everything Laura said, but I just want to say that this is the first time we've seen any strategy on his part. Well, I'm not sure if it was a strategy or just a tactic to to divert divert attention away from it, because I'm sure the way this evolved was. You know, he was sitting there, you know, in his office, surrounded by his kitchen cabinet or whoever was willing to talk to him. And he thought, why are they picking on me? You know, I this is not a big deal. There's ISIS, you know, and then nobody like thought to develop that further and sort of talked to him about what ISIS was, where ISIS was from, what you could do about ISIS or any of that other stuff. The evidence of that, David, was what happened when Martha Raddatz asked him to uh, explain the differences between him and his running mate, Mike Pence of Indiana, who in the previous debate last Monday night or a week before uh, had laid out a completely different core strategy, which was that if the Russians kept uh, bombing, helping the Syrians, that we ought to go after uh, Assad and his air force and so forth and so on. And I think to my mind, one of the two most remarkable moments, I think the most remarkable was when he said he would um, seek the prosecution of Secretary Clinton, uh, or at least a special prosecutor, which I'm not sure the president has the power to go appoint for obvious political reasons. But I thought the most remarkable was when he basically said, I haven't talked to Pence about this. So he basically admitted that he and his running mate two months after, more than two months after they have uh, been together, have not discussed a common strategy for one of the central foreign policy uh, and national security problems that they would face when they uh, entered the White House. Um, you, don't, you don't get the, just the sense that those guys are like on the phone chatting it up all the time. In the first place, you know, Pence had a kind of a rough weekend given the the tapes. In the second place, you know, and this I, I would have to say, I, I don't blame Trump on this. Pence is a man who's come out against evolution, climate change, 
and the idea that cigarette smoking was bad for you, um, he doesn't believe in science. I don't know that I'd spend much time talking to him about anything at all. He clearly is out there in, you know, planet Mars. That may be true, but if I could just jump in here very quickly, Corey. You know, what Trump said last night was astounding because he really – it wasn't just that he diverged from Pence's stated view on – how to handle Russia in Syria. It was also that he came off really as rebuking his own president, his vice presidential pick, right? And Pence, whether you agree with it or not, it was a very clearly advocated stance. It was a very strong, uh, U.S. strong stance. And for Trump to come out and say, no, I don't agree, and I haven't talked to Pence about it was just kind of mind-blowing. No, it was kind of. Corey, you were going to say something. I was going to say that the best tweet of the weekend, as uh, stories were circulating about the Republican presidential ticket coming apart, somebody's saying that, you know, uh, whether or not Republicans like this ticket, you're going to be forced to carry it to term. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that, that's, that's a lovely comment. Uh, and I'm sure the Pence family would feel that that's the only way to go. May uh, I... Um, I'm sorry, David, go oh, ahead. Oh, my God. I got to say, folks, those of you listening at home, you know, you think we're sitting here bantering around because, you know, that's the way it is around here. But Laura Jakes has in front of her the transcript of the debate highlighted. So when I call you guys nerds, first of all, it's a compliment. But secondly, you got nothing on Laura Jakes, who's the biggest nerd we have ever had in the studio. Uh, I take that as a compliment. And furthermore, I believe that our fellow nerdy listeners deserve to have uh, educated you're so discussion right. happening here. That's why, you're in charge of, that's why you're in charge of our news division. Fact-based discussion. Yes. Uh, in the interest, since I am in charge of the news division, um, in the interest of fairness, I, it also struck me, since we're still talking about Russia and Syria and the U.S. role there, that Clinton pretty much said, in fact, she did say that she hopes by the time she is president, we will have pushed ISIS out of Iraq. I, I thought that was a kind of a, a wimpy stance to take. Uh, she has said that she doesn't want to have, quote unquote, ground troops. Clearly, there are already ground troops in Syria. She's not saying what she would do all that different from the Obama administration short of a no-fly zone, which does require ground troops to enforce um, and so I thought it was a whiff for her to say, well, you know, in terms of Mosul and how we would recapture Mosul or, or try to stabilize northern Iraq from ISIS, I really hope that's an issue I don't have to deal with because perhaps it will have already been taken care of by the time I'm in. Well, you know, first of all, I, I, have to, I, I don't quite agree with you. I think it was kind of a tip foul ball. Uh, she did get a little <laughs> bit of – I think she got a little bit of bad on the ball because, you know, she did say – no-fly zone and sort of safe areas for humanitarian reasons. It's something she's been pushing for for a long time. The Obama administration have been resisting it. They're, they've now moved to her position. you got to give her credit for that. She also said she would go after al-Baghdadi. Personally, I think, you know, you want to go after al-Baghdadi, great. The world would be better off without al-Baghdadi. Uh, but I don't agree with her assertion that, you know, going and getting rid of the leadership of al-Qaeda actually helped that much. Uh, because look where we are right now. So I, th I think it was a kind of a mixed bag, but at least she was going to the substance on this kind of thing. I would like to now poll the group. Corey, David, Lara, in that order, please name for me one thing that Donald Trump said last night about foreign policy, which was either coherent or a fact. I am rushing to my transcript as Corey and David me, David. <laughs> I've stumped Corey. 
for we've been doing this a year. It's the first time that I've, that I've managed to render Corey speechless. David, as you were sitting there riding a moose across the great swamps of Vermont, can you think of something? No, I was actually I had highlighted on on my and you know I'm like Lara, I didn't printed out. I have the transcript in front of me on a screen. I don't know if that makes me more or less uh, nerdy than Lara. I can send uh, it to you. But, uh, it's a tie. I was, I was struck by one thing that it is a t- <laughs> as, as a as, you know, as opposed to you because you've memorized it at this point, right? <laughs> so um, no, but, no, Chicago, you'll know Corey's a nerd when you know you know a little bit later from now we'll start talking about Mexico and she'll talk about the Gadsden Purchase as a turning point in U.S. history. <laughs> I'm locked and loaded talking about what Millard Fillmore's debates would have been like. Yeah. You know, I just want to point out to you before David makes more fun of me for being in Vermont, I am closer to the Canadian border right now than any of the rest of you. No, no, you clearly you've clearly got a game. Unfortunately, you know, for me what happened was when I talked to you I talked about you riding a moose there, I all of a sudden had this image of you a la Putin shirtless riding across the Vermont. And and I'm I Too swear, much information, gentlemen. I I just I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through the rest of my day. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's too he, early. He, I don't got, know. So he got close to a point, David, close to one, when he made the 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 point that Russia, Syria, and the Iranians uh, were one in Syria. Okay, so I was thinking, okay, so for the first time, he's he's understood here where all of these three pieces fit together. He then spun off in a completely different direction and explained why it was that we shouldn't go after Assad or the Russians, which seemed to me to contradict the observation that they are um, basically on the same side of this. Um, Not an observation, I, I also a highlighted... <laughs> that is um, a fact. It is a fact, and he said it anyway. And he said it anyway. That's right. Then when he got to the Russia discussion, it got truly remarkable because uh, he began talking about how he wasn't sure not only that the Russians had been involved in the hacking incidents in the U.S., which we've described uh, in the past, but he wasn't certain whether or not any hacking had taken place at all. Um, yeah. He said that uh, he, he, he said she doesn't know if it's the Russians doing the hacking. Well, of course— not 48 hours before the American intelligence community had come out and said they were now confident they were. Then he went on to say, maybe there is no hacking. And they always blame Russia. And the reason they blame Russia is they're trying to tarnish me with Russia. Well, first well, I of thought all- that, was a, that was a pretty interesting way to sort of try to deflect what was continued defense of, of Putin. Well, I love the notion that there was no hacking. Like John Podesta's emails have outed themselves. Somehow they crawled out of his computer and into the public sphere entirely of their own free will. Well, they were led there by Colin Powell's uh, emails, which probably encouraged Podesta's emails. There's, to come our out emails are turning on us, folks. And this is a real problem facing America. I, you know, I, I have to say, you go through his Syria comments, you go through his Iraq comments, you go through the Russia comments, which, by the way, she baited him on beautifully. You know, every time she laid out the bait of Russia, he took it and defended Russia, defended Putin, or said, I don't know anything about these guys, even though he's on the record as saying the opposite many, many times. It was it, it was really beautiful. But to me, this is, you know, I'm a foreign policy nerd, too. To me, this is kind of amazing. 
This guy now, month in and month out, despite criticism from every potential corner, absolutely will not relent from his love for Putin, his defense of the Russians, even as they do more egregious things every single day, killing civilians, bombing hospitals, pushing you know, forward with their plans in Ukraine and elsewhere. What possible rationale could there be for this other than perversity or being you know, a tool of them? He, by the way, David, you work for The New York Times, which has many more reporters than Lara does. So he said, <laughs> he said, you know, they have my taxes. I don't owe any money to any Russians. Now, it seems to me that that is as demonstrably untrue as, you know, I, I was just talking. There are no actions on my part. Can't somebody prove that? Does the New York Times work on stories like that or is that? The New York Times does work on stories like that. And, you know, it is conceivable that since he was unable to pull off the Russia deals that he was negotiating a few years ago, that right now he doesn't owe any money to Russia or Russians. But it's also possible that that doesn't mean that there are are not other financial ties back and forth. And of course, there are Russian investments in some of his properties. Yeah, by the way, we can't help but note, and let's all have a moment of silence here. Today, the eighth wonder of the world, according to Donald Trump, the Trump Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City closed, failed after all these many years of being the eighth wonder of the world. Um, so a moment of silence. 3,000 people lost their jobs. Another Trump success story writ large. Go on, Corey. Oh, I, can just, so... I, I can just hear you. Yes. <laughs> it is true that I am breathing a deep sigh at the number of journalists who will find this the perfect metaphor. A, it is the perfect metaphor, but B, I don't want to read all the stories. Okay, let me let me say something here. Nobody listens to this podcast. It's just the four of us sitting here. Well, there's Maria over there sitting here chatting, and then there's maybe 11 listeners. So I can say what nobody can say, because every time I say this stuff, people go, oh, my God, you're baiting them. It's terrible, and it's going to just make things worse. But I look at Twitter. I look at the response I get from Trump defenders. I turn on the television. I listen to Corey Lewandowski or whatever the hell his name is. I listen to Kellyanne Conway. I listen to these Jeffrey Lord. I listen to these people who are defending him. These people are fucking crazy. I mean, they are ill-informed, intemperate. We've talked about the anti-Semites and the racists and all of this other kind of stuff. Can you name one single competent Trump defender? Twice in one podcast, you've stumped me, David. Listen, I, I suppose there's a, a very strong argument to be made by much of the Republican establishment that Mike Pence would be a competent Trump He doesn't defender. believe in evolution. That's science, for God's sakes. That's you can't you can't believe in facts or not just because you don't they don't suit your worldview. So so how could he be competent? He doesn't believe in a woman's right to control her own body, which has been you know a matter of U.S. law for forty years. I'm just saying the guy's been elected to Congress. He's been elected as a governor. Clearly, he has enough support from voters from Americans who feel like his positions 
align with his in one way or another. I want to go back to the question you asked a few minutes ago. By the way, when asked about the jailing comment, he said he thought that was a highlight of the debate last night. I'm sure he did. You had asked, David, uh, can we name one part of the debate where Trump may have made some ground or a good point on foreign policy? And it did seem that his use of uh, bringing up TPP was one of the smarter things that he did during the debate on issues of trade, whether you agree with his his abilities, his business acumen or not. It does seem to be one of the few areas that he at least has had some experience in, whether for better or for worse. It's also a smart political movement for him because he can bring it up to highlight that Hillary Clinton has flip-flopped on TPP. First, she was in support of it. And then when she was running for for president, she uh, is now against it. Well, first of all, Trump has had a range of views on trade. But let's set that aside for a second. David, you used to cover international economics before you drifted off into the sort of unearthly world of cyber. Do you remember when you did economics, David? I I, I do remember it because I think at the time you were a – Kicking around the Commerce Department because you were going to you were going to remake uh, trade for America and make yeah. it great again. Yeah, no, I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to that point in, in a second. Well, actually, I'm going to get to that point right now. You know, I, I was reading one of these WikiLeaked things that Hillary was talking about the Americas, and she was talking about wanting more trade integration and open borders, and people were like, "Ha, got you!" But let's just again, just between us. Isn't that actually better for America? I mean, aren't we just 5% of the world's population and therefore if we want to grow, we actually have to sell to the other 95% of the world's population? It wouldn't be better if we did that on a rules-based basis. And aren't open borders really the reason that we're the only OECD country that doesn't have an aging population and that we've got the workforce that we need to have? I mean, aren't these things good? I know we can't say this in a political context, but that doesn't stop them from actually being good. Or am I completely wrong about this, David? Now, one one of the things that really struck me about Secretary Clinton's description uh, of trade when in those uh, emails and what it was basically was a summary of the speeches she had given in the areas that they thought that she might be most vulnerable to to criticism, um, was that it bore a huge resemblance to what Commerce Department officials like, say, yourself would have briefed to me in the uh, midst of the Bill Clinton administration. By, By the way, an administration, which she pointed out, created 23 million jobs uh, produced more growth over an eight-year period than any administration in American history and actually saw steady wage increases throughout the period. No, I was going to make the point that despite the fact that it was part of your talk points, it may actually have been correct. Oh. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Total outlier so in the data the, pool. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the fact of the matter is that what was remarkable about the Podesta email and the summary of the secretary's comments, is that she was basically saying you need to take a private and a public position, something that she was asked about. And in trade, that's probably truer than in most things, because I think Secretary Clinton is part of that group that believes that trade can be inherently good, but to get out and make the case for it sounds like you're arguing for trade agreements that are deeply unpopular. And so she's put herself in the position now of having to be pro-trade and anti-large trade agreement, 
which may make sense, but would be far more complicated to explain in a political campaign than uh, she really wants to engage in. Yeah, but really, let's be clear, and I want to then go to Corey, but let's be clear. Uh, she has not said that she's anti-large trade agreement. She's actually said, I'm anti-this agreement in the state that it's in. and yes. And that suggests— After being for it in a previous state that was probably— Less beneficial, no different to the than the curtain state. state. Well, that that may or may not be true, but I don't think we should delude ourselves or be naive, right? The reason she said that is that she will then have a team in. That team will come in, trying to fix the agreement. They will fix the agreement, and when it's their agreement, they'll be for it. Yes, I I agree with David that there will be a minor unilateral tweak to the agreement if Clinton is elected, and then she will. Uh, enthusiastically claim it's a completely new agreement and magically now meets her standards. And Republicans in Congress, if there should remain any after this election, uh, will tell her that they will provide the number of votes to pass it that she provides on the Democratic side and TPP will eventually pass. But I want to go back to a more basic point, which is that both Davids have have given politicians carte blanche to talk nonsense about trade policy. And that's actually how we get to where we are now, where you have a public that is seemingly opposed to trade, politicians who are privately in favor of it, but not courageous enough to actually persuade the public that this is in our interest. It may be naive to believe that that the public ought to be led by leaders, but I still think it's true. The worst night, the worst Clinton moment of the debate last night was when challenged on the difference between her public and private positions on trade. She tried to wrap herself up as Abraham Lincoln passing the 13th Amendment. Okay, now wait, that was, and, that's, that's just not what she did, okay? And I saw all these people jumping on this, but actually what she was trying to do was present her comment in context and say that what she was referring to in the comment that was quoted about having a public and private persona was actually about Abraham Lincoln. She was not trying to compare herself to him. She was merely trying to take the comment and put it into context. It was actually Trump who then said she was comparing herself to him. David, I want to give you a chance to defend yourself here. I'm not going to defend myself. But but Corey just said you were giving carte blanche to politicians. Are there politicians up there with you in Vermont at the moment that you're giving carte blanche to? Uh, I don't think so. The only one that I can think of who's maybe somewhere in Vermont and he doesn't check with me on his whereabouts has made his view on trade pretty clear during the uh, earlier part of the campaign. That was Bernie Sanders. No, I think, Corey, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that trade is one of those areas where politicians, whether they are Republicans or Democrats, are struggling between a common perception and the reality that when you have open trade, it, the, the harm does not fall equally on all economic groups. It falls more heavily on some than others. But they can't bring themselves to try to explain during a campaign that a lot of the forces we're seeing happen have nothing to do with trade. They have to do with uh, modernization. They have to do with computerization. They have to do with the use of artificial intelligence, that a lot of these jobs might move offshore even if you had no trade agreements. And that's just 
too hard a compl- an argument to go make in a presidential campaign that's mostly bumper stickers. Yeah, by the way, I, now I will defend myself. The reason I brought this up, Corey, was precisely the point you made, which is trade is actually good for the American people. It does actually create jobs. Trade agreements can be good. Um, I also, however, am quick to say that we in the Clinton administration oversold the trade deals, didn't deal with the dislocations and the disruptions caused by the trade deals, used a vocabulary and a sort of body language that was completely insensitive to the people who were dislocated by this. And we need to find a new way to proceed on trade that actually recognizes that it's both a good thing and can be beneficial to everybody, but that these deals have to be structured in a way that that actually works. And I, you know, I, David says this can't be said. I think it just took me 40 seconds to say it. I think politicians who don't say it are underestimating the intelligence of the American people to understand these things if it's laid out. And this goes back to Corey's point of leadership. Speaking of leadership, Corey, The leadership in your party seems to be abandoning the Trump ship like uh, the proverbial uh, rats, although I actually think it's a sign of uh, spine and and, uh, at least – Self-preservation? Yeah, but also kind of a belated sense of what's right. As we were actually recording this uh, session, Speaker Paul Ryan uh, told a conference call that he was not going to defend Trump and that he was going to go and focus on – Uh, local elections. Uh, His number two, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, said the same thing. Uh, Dozens of Republicans in the past three days have said they're not going to have anything to do with the Trump campaign, many denouncing him, many suggesting that somebody else be written in on the ticket. Uh, Some of these people, like Mitt Romney, never much liked Trump anyway. Some of them were Trump supporters, like uh, Jason Chaffetz and so forth. I've never seen this, ever. And it doesn't look like last night's debate is stopping the Republican Party's drift away from their own candidates, almost as if they gave him the nomination and now he's decided to run as a third party candidate opposed to them. They're opposed to him. This is going to do great with him and his base, but he's going to end up with 32 percent of the vote. Yes, I I agree with that assessment, David, that elected Republican leaders may have feared a couple of months ago that Trump was a juggernaut and that they could not be reelected in opposition to him. And I believe many of them are reconsidering that judgment. Uh, And and that's the great thing about uh, the American political system, tied so tightly to the views of American voters with elections every two years, which is that politicians have to actually figure out what their voters want. And I, for one, take it as an enormously heartening sign that a third of the Republicans in the Senate have now concluded that they can oppose Trump and still please their voters, even though Trump got the Republican nomination for president. Thanks. Makes me hopeful for the future of my party. Thanks. Can I offer the alternate view of that, Corey? I would think also that voters have to figure out what they want from their politicians. I mean, there were, what, 16 other Republican candidates in this field before Trump was decided on as the nominee. I think the party needs to go back to the voters and say, 
What the heck do you want from us? We gave you every color of the rainbow here, and you went with this guy. And now, 30 days before the election, we're supposed to come up with a new battle plan? I don't know that I would use the term every color of the rainbow, Laura. I think they gave them every color of beige. (laughs) So a couple of things. One is that... Uh, the IISS Journal Survival gave me the, the really fun assignment of trying to figure out Republican foreign policy after Trump. And that required me to go look at who Trump voters are in a more systematic way than I had before. And one of the things that was most interesting to me in figuring out who had voted for Trump and who continues to support him was that, you know, the 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 general belief is that Trump brought into the political process in the primary an enormous number of people who hadn't voted before. And that's actually not true. The Trump voters are Republican general election voters who hadn't voted in the primary. That is, these are people who are Uh, many of whom are in the Republican mainstream, and we need to win back to to be mainstream conservative voters by offering them Republican policies that actually solve their problems. And here's where David Rothskopf's very good point about trade policy comes in, that we, not just the Clinton administration, but, but conservatives in particular have talked about trade policy as one that lifts all boats. And when our voters came back to us and said, we're worried about job security, um, we said, but your TV is going to be cheaper. And that is wholly unsatisfactory. We need to actually listen to the concerns of the majority of Trump voters who are also mainstream Republican voters and provide conservative policies that actually address what they're worried about. But, Corey, isn't the remarkable element here that that's what Democrats and mainstream Democratic voters have been saying for some time? And so to some degree what's happened here now, if, if your analysis is right, and I'm sure it is, is that you're beginning to see the Republicans take up the Democratic mainstream position on trade. That's the one that scared Secretary Clinton. I think you're exactly right, David. But but one other um, data point for the discussion, which is the Chicago Council on Global Affairs just released their survey of American public attitudes. And the most striking thing in the data is that 58%, even of Bernie Sanders voters, favor free trade, that that the intensity of preference of people who oppose trade is what we need to defang. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Whether you're interested in U.S.-Russia relations, Russian policy in the Middle East, Russia's view of the Arctic or more, Russia Direct offers in-depth research and reports from high-profile international experts on a wide range of important and newsworthy topics. Make Russia Direct your first stop to understand what the news and trends around Russia mean for a broad range of stakeholders around the world. Go to www.russia-direct.org today to learn more. Okay, so we've got about five minutes. There's two points that I want to get to. Um, The first has – I will use trade as the bridge. I had a great honor bestowed upon me just in the past 24 hours. Uh, There was actually an attack on me on Breitbart. 
and I, you know, I consider this to be, you know, kind of You're a, a big shot, David. I'm a big shot. And uh, by the way, not as big a shot as they said I was because the article which attacked me said that I was in charge of NAFTA during the Clinton administration when I was just a peon soldier in the in the NAFTA um, struggle. Can we call uh, you King NAFTA you anyway? Can, you may call me King NAFTA, although you have always called me King NAFTA, if everybody <laughs> should know that. But in any event, um, the, the – yeah, never mind. But, but, but why did Breitbart attack me? Well, of course, Breitbart attacked me because yesterday we made the decision or we revealed the decision, which we'd made over a number of days, that for the first time in the nearly half-century history of foreign policy, we were going to endorse a presidential candidate. And our rationale was pretty direct. We are about national security and foreign policy. One of the candidates actually represents perhaps the greatest, certainly one of the greatest national security uh, threats that we face in the United States, and that's Trump and the possibility of his election, whereas the other candidate represents one of the very most qualified people ever to deal with national security or foreign policy issues over the course of her pre-presidential career, and that's Hillary Clinton. Uh, we thought the choice was clear. We thought there was some urgency to raising it, and we thought our obligation to our readers to have a kind of an elevated discourse on this subject required us to do this. It will not have any effect on our objectivity uh, or, our, or our complete commitment to maintaining um, balance in our coverage, uh, as is the case with the New York Times, who's done this, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and other organizations. But first, I want to turn to Laura, because you were involved in this discussion. I was just wondering if you wanted to put it in perspective from your point of view. So I, I kind of focus grouped some of the ideas and the editorial uh, with people in my household, in my, my neighborhood, um, before the editorial was printed, uh, just to kind of touch base. Does this with- include your infant child? Uh, she did not have strong opinions on the editorial. No, uh, I'm surprised. Um, but you know, wanted to see: Do people really think that Hillary Clinton is one of the strongest national security foreign policy candidates we have seen running for president since World War II? The people I talked to, conservatives and liberal political persuasions, both some people in their 70s, some people in their 30s and 40s said yes. I mean, we sat there and tried to think of a list. Who else would be on that list? Eisenhower, George H.W. Bush. So we, we thought about it pretty pretty deeply. Um, we thought about, okay, so if Trump is one of the largest threats that we face today, what are the other major threats that we face? What, what will still be there when and if he loses this race? Uh, of course, Qaeda, of course, the Islamic State, of course, nuclear proliferation. So the editorial, while a historical benchmark for, for foreign policy, I think was a, a, a sort of obvious position for this publication to come out in, in favor of um, in supporting Hillary Clinton. Having said that, as you did, obviously we have a, political reporters who are covering this campaign and we are taking every precaution to make sure that our coverage is always balanced and fair and accurate. And also, we, you know, our commentary is balanced and fair and accurate. Um, I would point out that Corey Shockey served in a Republican administration, and she is by far not the only one of our regular commentators who has. We have, we have some considerable uh, balance in this regard. Corey, being as how you are affiliated with us and how you were one of the people to sign the document um, among Republicans uh, that 
uh, took issue with uh, uh, Trump's candidacy. I was wondering if you have any comments on on this decision we've made. You are right, David, that I think I'm a signatory of every anti-Trump letter, not just because his policies are nonsense and dangerous uh, to adopt, but also because of the disrespect he shows for my fellow Americans and for me. So I was pleased to see FP make the endorsement. I'm pleased to see the number of conservative uh, media, Deseret News, uh, lots and lots, the Arizona, uh, what's the newspaper in Arizona? Arizona Republic, San Diego Um, Union, Columbus Dispatch. Yeah, I think I think actually that this is not a liberal position. This is a centrist position that foreign policy has taken and that so many other newspapers have taken as a function of the danger that Donald Trump poses to us all. David, I just want to say to you, I apologize because, you know, we had to take this position. It's what our conscience dictates, even though Donald Trump regularly says you're his favorite journalist. Well, he was he was saying that after our, our various interviews. I haven't heard him say it in a while. And it may have been somewhere between the Times's decision to write its own editorial, which the news side of the Times is not at all involved in. We have a a pretty high wall on that issue, and the revelation of his uh, tax return from uh, 25 years ago that um, I, I haven't heard him say much nice about the New York Times or me in, in some time, but who knows? Uh, you know, the campaign's not over yet, right? Yeah, by yeah, the way. You could bounce Mitt, back, David. You could bounce back. You could. He could. There could be a – you could be press secretary in the Trump White House. Uh, <laughs> um, but I – uh, although I, I do – I want to give you credit, David, because Trump last night in amidst his sort of incoherent uh, rant that sounded like somebody's drunk uncle wandering around the house in his pajamas, uh, in talking about you know Syria, he kept talking about a line in the sand. That's not what you talked about. You talked about red lines. You were the, the man who made the red line famous. Isn't that true? I don't think I made the red line famous with him. I, my my claim to infamy in all of this or, or fame, however you uh, regard it, is that I was the one who asked him whether his uh, policies seemed uh, more like uh, what uh, happened in the 1930s when— uh, Oh, no, no. That was with Trump. I was talking about with Obama. Oh, with Obama. Yeah. Yes. Remember yes. him? I Obama used to be president of the United States. <laughs> I, I, I do recall that. I do recall that. Okay. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, no, in 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 that the red line. I'm I'm not sure I can claim any credit or harm for that one. Okay. Just put that back on Obama. Maybe. Yeah, we'll put the, we'll put that back on Obama. I mean, by the way, you know, there's so many things happening in the news. You know, it's like we don't have the chance to get to them. You know, Trump in the middle of this debate said that the Times was right, you know, that he had this big loss and said, of course, he didn't pay taxes. You know, Mitt Romney's head must have exploded because, like, nobody has even talked about the fact that here was a Republican candidate saying, oh, no, of course, I, you know, why pay taxes if I can get away with it? Um, and then, you it know, yet one more uh, thing we thought we knew about American politics that is being tested anew this election cycle. Yeah, right. Exactly. And meanwhile, there's a provocation with Iranian gunboats in the U.S. off in the Persian Gulf. And uh, and and it's not even 
you know, making and the new- remarkable IC conclusion that I mentioned earlier that it was indeed the Russians who were messing with the selection, which strikes me as something of a national security issue. Yeah, it could turn out to be Putin's biggest blunder, however, because he's clearly bet on the wrong horse, and he's going to end up with a president. Uh, who is going to be uh, uh, not well disposed towards him. But that's something to look forward to, which brings me to my last point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement. It's my point of view. It's just my point of view. It's not the point of FP. It's not the point of view of anybody else. It's not the point of view of my family or children or anybody. But this is my point of view. One, in my adult lifetime, I have never been as enthusiastic about a candidate as I am about Hillary Clinton. I'm enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton because I think she's well qualified. I'm enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton because I think she works really, really hard at what she does because her track record as Secretary of State and in the Senate shows she can work across the aisle when that's what we need and because uh, I think she's exceptionally well equipped intellectually and experientially and temperamentally to deal with the issues we've dealt with and not slightest because – you know, I I feel that I'm a feminist. I feel that uh, the, the the wrongs that have been perpetuated in this society and others against women are are grotesque. And it's about time that if we have a democracy, that the majority in the democracy is represented in the Oval Office, in the top position in the land, uh, and that's women. So I think all of those things are great. Furthermore, America, contrary to what is said in the election by either side, is stronger now than it's ever been. America is more prosperous now than it's ever been. America has recovered from the last crisis more rapidly than any other developed economy. America does not face any existential threats to speak of. The the enemies we've got at the moment are all weak and do not compare to the enemies that we faced in the 20th century. Uh, we are still the leading destination for immigrants in the world. We are still, uh, you know, for people seeking to locate a new place, still the biggest producer of patents, still the place where our institutes of higher education are the ones everybody wants to be part of. The future for the, Amer- the United States looks great on its own. It looks great compared to everybody else in the world. It looks great compared to the past. This should be a moment of great optimism, and I regret, frankly, that Hillary Clinton, who I embrace as a candidate, is not – showing some of that optimism because I think optimism wins in election campaigns. But I also think the facts bear it out. The reason she's not is that some people are suffering and you can't celebrate the positive things without apparently uh, making the people who are suffering feel that you're not aware of it. At least that's the theory. I think you can because I think, you know, you can acknowledge that there's a lot to work on, but fortunately, we have the wherewithal and the means and the sensitivity to do that and perfecting ourselves is what the American system is all about. But I feel that this is a very positive moment, even though there is all this sleaze and mire around us and even though watching the debate and everything else makes me feel like I want to take a shower all day long uh, in order to avoid it. And, and, and I find that tension one of the weirdest tensions of all between being at a very optimistic, positive moment and being in the midst of this sleaze, which hopefully we will soon forget. I toss it open to you for final responses on this. Corey. That was some sermon, David. I I like the optimism that you have that our problems are fixable and that uh, the main focus should be on figuring out 
how to help Americans face change bravely. I agree very strongly with those things, um, although I am only voting for Clinton with great prejudice uh, and not with the enthusiasm you are. David? Well, you know, I think Secretary Clinton's got limitations as a candidate, deep as her experience as Secretary of State and the other things she's done uh, have been. And we've seen those in the campaign. And she's probably extraordinarily fortunate that she's running against Donald Trump, somebody, one of the few people in uh, you could think of in that in that atmosphere who polls with much higher negatives and has driven them even higher since uh, than she does. What I worry about, David, is that even if everything you say is correct, the day after Election Day, whoever gets elected, and I suspect it will be her, is going to have to work up uh, a way to go run the country. And I'm afraid that those who are supporting Trump are going to be so alienated if he loses that uh, that's going to be a harder test than ever, even from the beginning. That's an excellent point. Uh, Laura. So I will... Uh, do a cardinal sin of journalism and start a sentence with the words, I think. I think that the reason why this election, one reason why this election seems so depressing, seems like it's so fraught with angst, seems so divisiveness is because Trump has tapped into um, some anger, some some real divisiveness in this country. I don't agree that this is a very optimistic time in America it's more of a domestic issue, I think, than it is a foreign policy issue, but it does kind of bleed over into the areas that we hear at this magazine cover when it comes to how the United States greets or treats people who are in minority, people who are Muslim, people who are Latino. Certainly the black community in America has a much different view on the optimism quote unquote, of America than many of us do. And as the mother of a black baby, I worry about the world in which my daughter will grow up. There you have it, folks. I'm, 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 I feel that I may be slightly more optimistic and enthusiastic about our prospects than everybody else on this. But I think we're all joined by the fact that we think that we can identify the problems that are out there and that um, the next president's going to have their hands full addressing them. But I remain optimistic that uh, that's precisely what will happen because that's what happens in the United States of America on a regular basis. You, it's hard for people to remember how bad things were in 2008 when the last transition between administrations took place. Uh, and how far we've come since then. But it's worth remembering, both because one has to give credit to the prior administration and actually to the Bush administration for the way they helped to handle the crisis, the financial crisis. But we, we, we do tend to solve problems. The United States does tend to get better. And I think we'll continue to do that. And I think that's worth keeping in mind, at least until the next edition of the ER, which will take place next week at roughly the same time, or at least whenever you listen to it. And uh, we hope you will join us for that. In the meantime, I want to thank Corey and David and Lara for another excellent job. And I am sure there will be plenty to update you on in the week ahead. Thanks very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP, 
and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.